Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Well, hello everybody to our sixth episode. I can't believe we're at sixth episode. We're discussing the topic of managing sleep struggles with children. According to Western sleep studies, bedtime resistance, which I'd never heard of before I came to this country, by the way, Uh, it's a very cultural word for sure, and frequent night wakings were amongst the most common sleep complaints that parents report to their pediatricians. This was in the research, Mindel et al., 2006. And so what we're going to do is unpackage this topic from various perspectives. First of all, Mm -hmm. we're going to start off by talking about the common mistakes we make when establishing sleep habits with our children. Then we're going to progress to the very 20th century reality of limiting the impact of technology, blue light specifically, and its impact on sleep. And then lastly, but certainly not the least, this is a truly brilliant piece of research It's a research-based tool called the Bedtime Past, favoured by pediatricians, developed by behaviour analysts, and it is profoundly amazing. So I'm really excited about sharing that, and we will also run through a case study that Mandy did with her clients. So let's get cracking. Great. Welcome, Aditi. Oh, by the way, resource. I forgot that. Uh, The resource is an actual bedtime pass. It's a tangible item that you can download and print right away because after this episode, you're all going to know how to use it. So at a click of a button, you've got the pass and you're ready to go. Great. So this week, Aditi, I've elected to give a shout out to an online resource and an organisation that can assist parents and professionals and even the media in learning more about effective treatment for autism. Uh, referred to as ASAT or the Association for Science in Autism Treatment at www.asatonline.com. They state that their mission is to promote safe, effective and science-based treatments for people with autism by disseminating accurate, timely and scientifically sound information, advocating the use of scientific methods to guide treatment and combating unsubstantiated, inaccurate and false information about autism and its treatment. It's a free resource for for parents and professionals and it can assist you in sort of looking at what the current research is in relation to treatments, looking at evidence-based interventions and the level of efficacy for each of those treatments. I use this website in the early days as an autism parent. It's a wonderful resource. They also publish a free monthly newsletter and it's published in 12 languages and disseminated apparently in 100 countries around the world. A wonderful project. So, yeah, uh, shout out to ASAT and um, their board of both behavioralists and psychologists. I believe there is a social worker on their board as well, as well as parents who are living with autism every day and obviously having to look at interventions and their effectiveness. So that's a great big shout out to ASAT. Thanks, Aditi. Brilliant. Well, I have to say this is one of my favourite aspects of doing this podcast is these resources. I would never have known of this. So thank you. That's a brilliant addition to our collaboration. So going back to sleep or lack of it, most of us need about eight hours of sleep, right? And there is this very small group. It's about one to three percent that I saw in the literature. They're called the sleepless elite. (laughs) They are happy to get by with just a few hours. Now, wait for this, right? Martha Stewart, Margaret Thatcher, Four hours of sleep a day. That's all they need. Nikola Tesla, 
Thomas Edison, three hours, three. I was like, blast, I, you know, if I get six, I'm like, oh, groggy. So I don't know, are you, I think you're in the same boat though, Mandy. Well, I'm pretty good on five. Yeah, I do a lot of exercise. I feel like that has over the years reduced my amount of sleep and perhaps having a child with autism also, uh, you know, <laughs> trained me for that job as well. Um, but at three, you know what, I'm reaching for a lot of caffeine, Aditi, absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. So we all start out very hopeful, right, Mandy? Like yeah. we, you know, as parents, we're like, okay, let's do the bedtime routine, start with a warm glass of milk, perhaps a lavender bath, comfy pajamas, uh, bedtime story, tucking them in, and then multiple I loves you kisses and all this drama. And then there's this great expectation that we have as parents, which takes quite a horrid turn, actually, uh, that we've, you know, we've sort of built this expectation of success that now we just turn the light off and off they go. They're off to bed and we're good. But we all know the bottom does fall off or out often, uh, you know, it's one more story, mum, or one more glass of water, or, you know, there's one more mon monster under the bread bed. There's always something, and it sort of goes on and on. So, again, we start off quite patient, especially in the early years, and then the frustration really escalates, you know, and then we resort to sort of our own behaviors like pleading, right? That's what starts with <laughs> little pleading of, okay, go to sleep, please. And then it becomes bribing. Well, I'll let you watch an extra hour of TV and then you can sleep. And then it, we get the real big guns out and, you know, start talking about threats, like empty yeah. threats that are like, you know, oh, you're not going to get TV tomorrow or, you know, you won't be able to go to grandma's house on the weekend, which you know is going to happen. And then, of course, it leads to other not so nice words under your breath because you're so exhausted and frustrated. And um, sometimes, quite often, they end up sleeping in your bed or worse, you get sort of contorted into their toddler bed. So the cycle repeats itself. And I know it's very familiar to many people. Uh, what are the detrimental aspects of this? What, what does the research say about the recommendations for children in sleep? Yeah, did I had to go and look this up because uh, I have t two children of my own that don't <laughs> accord to the norms. But um, in general, um, sleep for children is very important. Everybody knows that in its support of cognitive growth and physical growth and development. The literature says that somewhere between the ages of 6 and 13, they require between 9 and 11 hours of sleep, which might be a big surprise to some of you out there whose children seem to get a lot less than that. And uh, this long-term sort of research looks at these hours to support minimising behavioural problems and cognitive deficits that are believed to have come about because of sleep deficits. Um, nonetheless, there is a considerable portion of school-aged children that get less sleep than that, with something like 23% of children sleeping only eight hours a night and 8% sleeping less than seven hours, sorry, seven hours or less than that. That's data from the National Sleep Foundation of 2014. Wow, 8%. Yeah, that is profound. So obviously we're making, we're doing something wrong, right? So as parents, we're making some errors. So I did look at the research and I was like, okay, let's figure out what the common mistakes we're all sort of making. The first one is tending to stay in your child's room or bed. That's a big no-no. You know, when your little one pleads, you know, lie down with me, mummy, or looks at you with those big brown puppy eyes, it's really hard to resist. But it's quite a parent trap. 
because, you know, in your mind, you're like, okay, if I just sort of lay here with them, they'll fall asleep quicker and I then I can go relax and watch TV and have a glass of wine. But we have to be wary as parents because typically it doesn't work. And what it sort of starts is the cycle of future drama. It's sort of the antecedent, I guess, for worse behaviors to come. So, you know, if you wish to give in to your child and stay with them longer, you're really inadvertently training them to rely on your presence to fall asleep. And this is what we talk about in OT a lot with parents in sleep is, you know, if mom is like, oh, he's got sensory issues, I, he needs me to rub his back or he needs to play with my hair. I'm like, well, yeah, you can do that, but you are creating what's called a silk crutch or in the literature, it's also known as a sleep prop. So sleep crutch or prop, that becomes a habit for your child and you, and then they become reliant on it and you become accustomed to it. And then the bigger profound impact that happens is if they wake up in the middle of the night, which we all do, they need that crutch to go back to sleep. And that's ruined your entire sleep cycle for everybody. So do you have any other thoughts on that? But actually, before you do, I'm going to point out some other mistakes that the literature highlighted. Lack of routine, which I found a bit, I don't know, I'm a bit wary of that because lots of cultures don't have routines. Uh, but they manage sleep. Uh, lack of limits. Giving in are, you know, some of the other common mistakes that I read about. It makes me think of this really funny skit that Jerry Seinfeld does on the dramas that you know he had with his own kids on getting them to sleep and you just sort of recounted these massive efforts of you know five books and you know all of these stories and it's like become you know when he was a kid it was like go to bed and then all of a sudden you know he had his own kids and there was this major drama of you know going to sleep and I think at some point you know parents are so sleep deprived and they'll almost do anything just to get their kids to go to sleep. And, you know, by the end of the day, especially, you know, if you are a got a busy life and a lot going on and, and I have a, a child with autism, you know, you're just really craving some time to organise yourself and, re, you know, recuperate. So you'll do almost anything to avoid, you know, crying or resistance at bedtime. You know, and an attempt to make it easier, however, as you said, generally, you know, you've got the potential to make bedtime a nightmare, something that everybody is, like, dreading. And then what happens is bedtime refusal sometimes and that resistance impacts, you know, a child's ability to fall asleep on their own. And as you say, you know, you develop these crutches because who wouldn't want to, you know, fall asleep with someone stroking their hair or rubbing their back? I mean, gosh, you know, that's kind of my idea of, you know, heaven. So um, in our last episode, we covered the behavioural account of sleep being the process of falling asleep in a chain of behaviour that is then reinforced by the sleep itself. And so, yeah, you need to go back to the episode to hear more about that. But basically, I think there is a behavioural account and support in our field, at least, that if we don't teach kids to fall asleep on their own, they become dependent on some crutch, um, either parents or something else to assist them to go to sleep. And breaking that habit is extremely difficult. And, um, you know, I've worked with parents with who've used lots of different tools to get to sleep. One of them, for instance, is letting kids have TV on uh, in the bedroom to go to sleep, and that becomes a crutch because they want to watch TV in bed and then fall asleep to the TV, which, you know, off the record, I also like myself, but it's yeah, not, guilty. you know, it's, <laughs> it is not good because then in the event you go, no, I want you to go to sleep tonight, you know, they have a crutch of wanting to fall asleep to TV 
And then you have the nightmare of the TV being on and having to, you know, fight about it or they have friends over or, you know, you go to someone else's house and they don't have it, you know, it becomes a nightmare. So it's a big mistake to establish a crutch that the kid needs to fall asleep rather than them becoming tired on their own and then falling asleep independently. Well, I will tell you again, in OT terms, you know, we see a lot of parents who come to us and they're like, oh, Johnny's got sensory issues. So sleep is really hard for them. And they absolutely tend to fall in that category. And some OTs might help them get there, which is, you know, unfortunate, but it happens because we really need to look at sensory strategies as an antecedent and a routine. Again, that was addressed in our last episode. But I do want to go into poorly set up bedrooms because as you mentioned, technology, it's a big problem and it's a real problem and it's very salient. That's what's interesting to me. But that was uh, highlighted as a common mistake, a poorly set up bedroom with light or even TV, video games, computers, smartphones. Children are going to bed with their smartphones. So making sure that those are in your room and not their room, you know, for charging also not allowing your child on devices. The literature actually recommends 30 to 60 minutes before bed. I have to be honest, I'm guilty. I, you know, I I haven't adhered to that at all. Because I think in my mind, I'm like, oh, it doesn't, it's not a big deal. But after I read the research, it is. And it's really unlikely that your child has the willpower to resist these devices if they're in the room. And with the little pings and all that, it's going to light up the room. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it results in fragment sleep. And I know this because, Mandy, when you text me from, from <laughs> Australia, it's Sorry often 4 it a.m. And oh, I- yeah. Sorry about that 14 hour time difference. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of literature on blue light and its impact. So I just wanted to go over that really quickly. Good. Um, yeah, let's do that. There is this sort of ubiquitous aspect of technology. It's, you know, our faces looking at screens all day. We can't avoid it. But there's also energy efficient lighting that has a very salient detrimental impact on sleep. And I didn't know this, but not all colors of light have the same effect. Blue wavelengths specifically, which are brilliantly beneficial for daylight hours because they keep us alert, they boost our attention, reaction times, mood, etc. They have an equal and opposite effect at night. Mm -hmm. So while light of any kind can really suppress the secretion of melatonin, blue light at night has a significantly more profound impact and it suppresses the hormone that we need that influences those circadian rhythms. So even if it's dim light, it can make a really profound interference in our sleep habits. There are also medical ramifications. Researchers have linked short sleep to increase for depression, as well as diabetes and cardiovascular problems. And um, there was a recent research by Harvard and their colleagues, and they conducted an experiment comparing the effects of 6.5 hours of exposure to blue light versus green light, and it was comparable brightness. The blue light suppressed melatonin for about twice as long as green light. That was profound to me, twice, just from light. And then it shifted the circadian rhythms by twice as much, three versus 1.5 hours. So these are all very good reasons to be very mindful of blue light and implement a digital curfew for children, powering off at least one to two hours before bed. What do you think, Mandy, (laughs) from your perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, look, there are behavioural difficulties around establishing that type of routine, but the bedtime pass might just be something to implement because very frequently when I go into um, parents' houses and I see they have sleep problems, they also have compliance issues as well around going to sleep. So not is there also a resistance to go to sleep, but there's also a resistance to follow rules in the household. So establishing rules around screen time should just be one of our episodes in general, Aditi, and I actually have yes. presented on that topic numerous occasions, how to become the CEO of your own household, especially in relation to screens. Oh, brilliant. And so I think, yes, down the track, let's look at that one again. But um, in terms of the bedtime pass, this is something that is developed by um, Dr. Patrick Fryman and um, an intervention designed to be used outside of the behavioural field in with other professionals and uh, with parents to assist them to get compliance around bedtime. So... Compliance around bedtime, when I think about that, I'm like, oh my gosh, lots of resistance. I mean, I know if I tell my kids to charge their phones in my room versus their room, it's like, oh my gosh, it's pulling teeth, right? You to climb Mount Everest, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we've already sort of, you know, this built-in resistance from children because sleep is sort of nature's timeout, right? They, They get a timeout from playing with their toys, having fun, and they have to go to their room and nothing's happening in their, in their yeah, mind. Everything yeah. is sort of shut off. So I really, when I read the re- literature, I was like, I love this sort of time out from life. That's really what you're doing, but, you know, your body needs it. And then technology elevates it to another level. The research indicates that resistance to bedtime is one of the most common childhood problems in outpatient pediatrics. And Prevalent forms of bedtime resistance include crying out, popping in and out of the room, wanting a drink of water, that sort of stuff. And then typical approaches from for these problems is typically prescribing soporific drugs, mm. co-sleeping, and ignoring bedtime crying. So some of these strategies possibly do reduce bedtime issues, but I imagine are not certainly ideal. I know they're not, they weren't for me. And again, I think they establish bad habits. So I would love a behavior analyst take on that. Okay. So um, in order to get to the bedtime pass, I think if you really want to understand it, it does come from the field of behavior analysis developed by Patrick Fryman, as I've previously said, one of my favorite people on the planet. And he's obviously a behavior analyst. And so there are some components of this intervention that only make sense really if you understand some behavioral principles. So I think I'm going to try and do my, you know, 100 years in 10 minutes type of if I can and down down the track you know we do have a deeper dive for those people that really want to learn how to use this intervention with some depth so let's go back to some core principles from behavioral science that account for you know how behaviors are formed how they're strengthened or weakened which in relation to bedtime resistance we want to weaken right how they're shaped and then how behavior extinguishes because these are key principles that are built into this bedtime intervention I want to make it clear for to my behaviour friends out there who um, already know these things, and but to those of you who are listening that don't have a uh, a strong understanding of behaviour science, these principles that come from behaviour science of reinforcement and shaping, extinction, etc. They're they're not a theory. They are established science. They provide the principles of how we get behavioural change. Um, through the use of scientific procedures. And we, down the track, will be presenting on components of this science to give you more information. But like it or not, if you really want to be effective in your practice, 
looking to behaviour science to look at the set of principles that really help you be an effective clinician and address behavioural challenges with clients you might be having is something that I would highly recommend and can add to your practice. Our podcast is designed to open communication between our fields and to share our, you know, over 200 years of combined research and practice. So to make sense of this intervention that we're going to talk about today, though, we need to explain some things to people that are listening that are not from a behaviour science background. So here I am going about to launch into 100 years in 10 minutes. But uh, the first thing that I'm going to go through, so you understand each of the components of the bedtime pass, is firstly reinforcement. We do have a whole podcast on this coming up. So my journey in this field has really been shaped by Og Lindsley and he was a proponent of plain English. So if you're thinking about reinforcement, you can think also of reward and relief, those two terms. We make it complicated as behavioralists because we use complex terms like positive and negative reinforcement, but it's actually quite hard to understand without a lot of detail. So reinforcement is anything that happens after a behavior that strengthens that behavior or makes it more likely to occur again. You know, in relation to bedtime, Aditi, do you want to give me an example of something that might have happened with one of your children when they fussed or cried? What was, you know, what was one thing that you tried? One thing would probably be, you know, I would go in there and uh, maybe just pat them or put the pacifier back in. I think that's a very common strategy. Maybe hold them if it was really bad. Yeah, so, you know, if it's something pleasant, if it's a reward, you know, you're likely to be strengthening and reinforcing that behavior. The opposite to that is relief. So if you have a child that's kind of uncomfortable or tossing and turning, and then you go in and rub their back, again, um, you know, you're likely to be reinforcing that whining and crying. And that's reinforcement. So it's, it's something that happens after a behavior that determines whether it occurs again. In relation to what behavioralists call an ABC contingency, you know, there's something that happens before a behavior, then the behavior itself, and then the consequence of that determines whether it occurs again, whether there's more of it or less of it. And antecedents are something you've talked quite a lot about, Aditi, because antecedent interventions are things that are commonly used by OTs. They may not call it that. You know, they may call it accommodations or they're things that can be implemented that assist to evoke certain behaviors. But as behaviour analysts, we really care most deeply. Antecedents can sort of adapt the environment or change the way someone responds to the environment. But really what all of our 100 years of science reinforces is it's what happens after a behaviour or the consequence that determines whether it occurs again. So these three favourite words that I keep using, the consequence matters. So looking at what is happening after a child fusses or cries is very, very important. Now, if we know that something has been reinforced or strengthened, reward or relief has occurred after a behavior and that behavior is, you know, happening at a high rate, um, the crying and the calling out and the leaving the room, when we first decide that we're not going to do that anymore, generally what happens, we call that the process of extinction. Um, we're removing pleasant consequences that have occurred previously what happens is we get something called an extinction burst. And um, this is means it gets generally worse before it gets better. And this is oh, where yes. a lot of people give in because they go, this is yeah. not working. This is much worse than it was before your recommendations. And so part of, um, you know, educating parents in changing the way that they're responding to their children is showing them 
this phenomena this that has been shown in the science over and over again called an extinction burst. And the period of time that this extinction burst goes on is really directly related to how long this behaviour has been reinforced, how much reinforcement has been provided. So, you know, if you have a child that's only been having sleep problems for a short period of time, it's likely that the extinction burst might be sharp and fast and quick and you can move on from that. But if you're working with, say, you know, a six or seven-year-old child and they have been fasting for years and years, this extinction burst is likely to go on a little longer. But in general, in the populations that I work with, even with children with severe challenges, you know, you may get an extinction burst for a few days and so expect it to get worse before it gets better. That's why data is so important because on a chart or on a graph, an extinction burst is so evident and it's such a relief to parents to see that because you can say, okay, look at that, you know, in our baseline measure, they were calling out, you know, four or five times or six or even seven times a night and coming out of their room eight times. And look at this, we've implemented a procedure called the bedtime pass, whereby now on day three, we are up to like 14 times. Hang tight because, you know, in a couple of days, we're going to see if this data turns it around. An extinction burst on a chart is very clear and visible to anyone, even outside of the field of behaviour analysis. So you get this big burst in behaviour and then extinction. Um, so understanding that extinction burst in this, uh, in the use of the bedpine pass, because it involves what we call escape extinction, removing previously consequences, um, positive consequences or rewarding consequences for leaving the bedroom. So let's talk about the bedtime pass and, and basically what that study showed. And of course, it's a little bit like, you know, driving a car. Um, you can just hop in there and drive it and you don't need how to fix it. So you can just use the bedtime pass without knowing any of this really, because I have used it, I want to say more than a dozen times and I've never, it's not ever not worked. So, but if you're going to be advising your clients and you want to understand it, then you have to, you know, actually open the engine and have a look and learn a little bit more about how it works. So and of course, there's more reading on the bedtime pass that um, that you can look into if you search it online. But here we go, a little bit more information here on um, how to start the bedtime pass and the components of that research study. So let's move on to, um, we talked about that three-term contingency or the ABCs of behaviour and that the most important part of that contingency is the C or the consequence. And that means that what happens after behaviour determines its future frequency. So when it comes to sleep, you know, we talked in our last episode of Didi about doing a proper sleep assessment, which is having parents complete a questionnaire on what their current strategies are for evoking sleep in their children. So we understand really we're trying to get an account of how much reinforcement has been provided in the past to bedtime resistance. Because if this has been going on for years, it can be much harder to address than something that has only been a short-term problem. And sometimes children will, you know, go for periods of time where they sleep quite well and then they get sick and they need to be, you know, comforted or they're in pain and parents or, you know, sometimes they go into hospital or they go on, on holidays and they come back and they get out of sleep routine. So, you know, that's a lot easier situation to address than a child that's been resisting going to bed for a long, long time. So if that happens, does it sort of reset the bedtime pass or it, it would still work? So the bedtime pass 
is an intervention to address that bedtime resistance. The intervention itself is the use of a card, which you can download from our resources or you can make your own. Generally, I try and make it as pretty as I can for the child and customise it for them so it's relevant to them. But all it needs to be is a piece of card with the child's name on it that can be redeemed for one thing, such as obtaining a glass of water or a hug or a toilet visit. Um, so, you know, when it comes to resistance, kids can engage in lots of different behaviours. So you can specifically target those things that they tend to do most when trying to leave the bedroom. And yeah, in general, I use a hug, a glass of water or going to the toilet. They're three things that commonly children use. So at the beginning of the intervention, as behavioralists, we generally take baseline data. In the study itself, uh, they took 17 days of baseline data and they looked at the number of crying instances or episodes and the number of times the child got out of bed. In Dr. Freeman's original study, although there is replications of the study as well that you can look at. So Mandy, how does one start this sort of intervention? Yes, we've heard this before, Aditi. As behavioural analysts, we would want to start by taking baseline data after having completed an assessment of um, current bedtime resistance. And we talked previously and provided the resource of the SAWT. Was it calling out or was it getting out of bed? Were there crying episodes, etc.? In Dr. Freiman's study, um, the two participants in that study, a 10-year-old and a 3-year-old, the data that they took there was on calling out and leaving the bedroom. They were the two behaviours that the children were engaging in. And in baseline, those two boys were engaging in that behaviour at a rate of between two and nine times a night in baseline, which was a 17-day period. So the intervention involved presenting a bedtime pass with the child's name on top with the rights to cash it in just one time. And yes, so if they came out of the bedroom, they would be able to hand in their bedtime pass once. And then after that, the parents would return them to their bedroom with minimal attention and any crying out was subsequently ignored. Now, this study is a uh, design called an ABAB withdrawal design, whereby you take baseline data, you intervene with a bedtime pass, then they withdrew that intervention to make sure that it was there intervention that was having the desired effect and then reintroduce the intervention again but as as people that are going to be using this intervention you would just take baseline data and look at the rate of calling out then you um i'll go through a case study of how you know i actually have used it successfully with one child and then after what was found in the study that after the second intervention phase of this study the boys were no longer leaving the room they were no longer losing the bedtime pass and at 50 days follow-up, um, they were neither using the bedtime pass or um, leaving the room at all. In the three-year-old, there was one of those big extinction bursts on day six of the first intervention phase where he cried out, I think, more than nine times, which is more than in baseline. That reduced very, very quickly and within three days of the second intervention phase, he was no longer using the bedtime pass and he was no longer leaving the room at all. Yeah, and I think most parents would have quit at that nine times. They would have been like, this is getting worse. Um, so what would happen if baseline data shows a much higher frequency of crying out and leaving the room? That's a really, really good question there, Aditi, and that's where we talked about, you know, the, the length of time that this behaviour had been reinforced, and that's where we would assess with the parents, you know, how much attention and what consequences were they providing for that calling out. In general, we know that behaviour that has been intermittently reinforced 
is, you know, more resistant to extinction. So, for instance, on one night, if you say, oh, darling, it's time to go back to bed and rub their their back, and then the next night it's like, go to bed or I'm going to take your phone off you tomorrow. (laughs) And then the next night the child just gets to sleep on their own. They fall asleep because they're so tired. This is like what we call an intermittent schedule of reinforcement. And that type of history is much more resistant to extinction. So having baseline data and knowing, you know, what the rate of calling out was or leaving the room, um, then it helps us to design. But let's just say you had a very high rate of reinforcement. There's a few things that we could do. And one is that we could implement, um, you know, some training with the child before I'm going to go through something and talk about what the bedtime pass is and talk about consequences for using the bedtime pass provide some education depending on the age of the child about the importance of going to bed independently and you know your values as a family in being kind to each other <laughs> requiring each other to have sufficient sleep so that you can be the best family you can be so you can provide sort of some antecedent intervention there you go we do provide antecedent interventions as behavioralists as well Aditi um, <laughs> to ensure that the likelihood of success is higher mm-hmm. and give the child some forewarning that this is going to be occurring so that's one thing you can do and then when I go through my case study, I'll look at a couple of other things because I had a little girl that I worked with. Let's go through that now. How about that? Sure. Let's talk about Liv. She was a nine-year-old girl that I worked with and she lived in a single household with her mum, but she often went to her dad's house. And when she went to her dad's house, she would go to sleep without fussing, without crying, without calling out. And when she was in her mother's house, she used to engage in huge amounts of tantrum and leaving the room and often ended up in her mother's bed. But in baseline data, it was between 10 and 12 occurrences a night, which when you say it like that doesn't seem much. But, of course, the process of leaving the room and then coaxing her back into her bedroom and then, you know, assisting her to go to sleep, it was really taking hours a night. And um, her mother was a working mother and very, very tired. And in the end, she would either let her, you know, fall asleep in her own bed or she would go and sleep in the bed with her. And it was really interruptive both to her daughter's life but also to her son's life that would you know he would frequently wake through all of the goings on in the house so I used a multi-intervention with this little girl because we had another child in the house that um, couldn't afford to have you know huge amounts of crying I had the mother collect a data for a week that showed this baseline data of between 10 and 12 episodes per night and I asked that um, Liv not sleep at her dad's house for a period of time so that we could get you know really good behavioral change in this environment before going to another sleeping environment First of all, we introduced a behaviour protocol following rules because often compliance is a big issue and, you know, that's just simply following five rules a day for this child resulted in a token and she could um, pass those tokens in for rewards at the end of the week. Mm -hmm. Then I provided training to mum to understand the extinction burst and reinforcement so that she knew how to ignore um, calling out and providing minimal attention. And how was that? Well, I mean, this mum was desperate. She was tired and exhausted I went there early in the evening before dinner. She was a chef, which was amazing because she ended up cooking me dinner. But um, through that process, we had a talk as a family unit and they really did have some beautiful core values as a family of loving and caring each other and using kind words in the house. So this was, you know, there was some antecedent intervention in terms of talking about why we were introducing these new rules around sleep. So, yeah, and then, you know, mum was like, I will do whatever it takes because she was in the process of leaving her job and starting to um, set up a new restaurant. So she really needed to, you know, have her sleeping routine clear and not to be fighting with her daughter at night. So we established this bedtime routine where we broke down a schedule that said, okay, you know, brush your teeth, put on your pajamas, get into bed. And she would tick off this 
schedule as she went and the consequence for that is that she would get to spend 10 minutes with her mum to read a book before she went to bed. She would then have a bedtime pass that she could cash in once. And we did a really fun game, which was called the bedtime pass game, which may, oh. may not sound as, as fun, but this is just a behavioral principle called behavioral rehearsal. And mm-hmm. so outside of sleep, we were like, okay, let's pretend we're going to go to sleep. And we gave her this really pretty bedtime pass. And we said, okay, Liv, like, you know, pretend that you have to get up and go to the toilet, which she thought was super fun. And she would cash in that bedtime pass with me. And then I got her to do it with her mum as well. Um, and then go back to bed and then we could provide her with huge amounts of reinforcement for effectively using this bedtime pass. So again, that was another intervention that I used because of the specific circumstances of this, you know, resistance that had been going on for a long time. And she used to cash it in for a hug with mum. So um, on day one, I went there, I helped them introduce her. She'd already practiced this previously. She ticked off her schedule. She got her 10 minutes of reading her book with mum and then she did come out on the first night and use her bedtime pass. After that, though, I asked mum to send me data each night on coming out of the bedroom or calling out and she used the bedtime pass on the first night that I was there and then she never used it again. Mm. And 30 days later, she was still going to bed and not using the bedtime pass. She kept it next to her bed. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of an antecedent. It was like a, a fallback position in case she wanted to leave the room. But she never did. And the reason this intervention is so effective is because there's some response effort in picking up the past, finding the past next to your bed, going out and cashing in. And because you kind of have it there to use, it reduces kind of the aversiveness of going to bed because there's kind of an out, you know, to it. So there's a psychological cognitive component to it then. Yep. You can sort of equate that to other things in your life where, Um, You might say, I'm going to take a break once I've completed this work and then you get into the flow of work and you just keep working. You don't need that. You don't need to call upon it. So, yeah, I have used it very effectively. In that case, it was a particularly challenging intervention because I had, you know, the relationship between the mother and daughter had deteriorated quite a lot. But this was actually a way of really turning it around in the household and getting a really positive outcome. Great. So I noticed you mentioned some other components to the study Can you elaborate a little bit quickly? Yeah, just that use of a schedule to go to sleep to try and get children Mm. independently getting ready for bed. I really love that one, depending on the age of the child. But even a very, very young child can attend to some sort of visual schedule to try and get them, uh, you know, we talked about this behaviour chain of getting into a quietude period. If they can be rather than arguing about brushing their teeth or arguing about putting their pajamas on, but have a really nice little chart that they can tick off, a visual schedule, there is, you know, evidence to support, you know, building independence into that, you know, reduces the opportunity for argument. And it can be contingent on something positive that occurs at the end of it before the bite. You know, I really liked it. I really liked the behavioral rehearsal that you mentioned. I do that a lot, behavioural rehearsal of any intervention that I do Mm. to make sure that the child is practised and rehearsed and it can be done in a really fun way. And, you you know, you can do it as a game and then I always make the mum, you know, overact so that it's the kids, if the kids are really into that kind of drama, the mum can kind of, you know, overact and sometimes even play the part of the kid and the kid gets to be the the one that you cash in the bedtime pass for. And that's just behavioural skills training, actually. We do a, an episode on how to do behavioural skills tra- training. Oh, there's just um, so much. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that is, uh, that is. I always find that practising an, uh, an intervention and giving forewarning allows you to problem-solve anything that might come up for the kid and the mum as well. That's brilliant. 
I really liked um, some of those components. I think behavioral rehearsal is a lot like role playing, which kids love to do and pretend play and all that. So I think that would those words would really uh, synchronize what we do in OT and other allied health fields. Uh, so what was the outcome for Liv? Um, huge success for Liv and mum. And you know, she was already in my program, so I had a very good instructional control with her anyway. But um, basically she used that bedtime pass the first night. She didn't use it again. We actually introduced five days in a row of either using the bedtime pass or, or not needing the bedtime pass to go to something here called Adventure World, which is kind of like a mini Disneyland. Mm. Um, and they did that once, but after that they were able to fade that as well because she just got into the habit of going to bed and it was became a really nice and pleasant situation in the household. The schedule to follow bedtime routine, she learned. She didn't need to tick it off anymore, so we faded that too. Mm. Um, happy mum, more sleep, less arguments, more compliance in the household. So mm. overall, yeah, that the use of that procedure, I probably didn't need to have those additional components, but I just kind of like to, when you're going into the home at night, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to make sure that you have everything in your ammunition and that it's going to be really successful. So, But again, the bedtime pass has been successful without those additional elements. I just like to guarantee that we're going to get a good outcome so I have a question if you have a child with special needs is this a pass you would consider I mean I'm I'm assuming they have to have these prerequisite skills of following directions things like that yeah generally not so I have used it for children with autism as well and you know depending again it can be really customized to the child with autism but if you have a child that's already in some sort of therapy and understands a token or you know the handover of a reinforcer in some way they can also understand the handover of a token or a smiley face or something that's quite simple and then you know they may not have the same cognitive understanding of what's occurring and the behavioral training may be different but the consequence is still the same that is you know, you can just say, okay, just one, you know, simple language and you hand in that smiley face, you provide praise and reinforcement for handing in the pass and then like time to go to bed. So the intervention is the same. It just can be customized. I guess you can talk about the deeper dive because I will be able to discuss that more in, you know, depth, right? Yeah. And as I said, you know, there's a hundred years of science built into that <laughs> bed, very simple bedtime pass. But guess what? People around the world outside of behavioral, behavioral field have used that bedtime pass very favorably. And the survey, follow up surveys on the use of those interventions have been extraordinary. And I think at one point, gosh, I might be getting this wrong, but I may have heard that he was nominated for some award for that procedure, which is actually, I remember him talking about it at some point And I, but I want to say it's like an Oprah Winfrey Award or something like that for his development of this procedure. And I can just remember Dr. Brahman saying, I have done, you know, much more complex research, but this one really hit home because it was simple. But if you want to understand more and you want to learn how to use this with your clients, we are going to have a deeper dive into the bedtime pass. Um, and this will assist you in the collection of baseline data, designing and writing an intervention and how to use behavioural skills training to assist parents to be successful with this intervention and then how to get them to collect data and provide it to you to support them in the intervention of it. So this will be our first deeper dive, Aditi, and you can find out about that in our Facebook group in days to come. Yay. And then do you want to chat a little bit about our next episode and Dr. Josh Pritchard? 
I am very excited to talk about this next episode, yes, because um, I know that I am going to learn a lot from this episode and I'm really excited to um, talk about our first guest podcast speaker, Dr. Josh Pritchard, who is an ex-associate professor, I want to hope that's right, Josh, from the Florida Institute of Technology. He also happens to be our Fit Learning Director, but we have asked him to speak on looking at what makes an intervention empirically validated. And I have asked him to assess some interventions, both um, incorporating OT-type interventions and looking at some OT research and looking at the methodologies that OTs use to assess the effectiveness of their interventions and how that compares to um, behavioural procedures. And I guess anybody out there that's interested in doing research or assessing the validity or empirical validation for those studies this is the podcast for you because it's going to assist you to look at, okay, what was the intervention? What was it designed to reduce? What behavior was it addressing? What was the rate of the behavior and what was the effectiveness of that intervention? And assist you in looking at some of the research to assess the, you know, the validity of that research and also how to incorporate it into your own practice. So thank you, Josh, for agreeing to take this on. I'm very excited and um, yeah. Looking forward to introducing you to Dr. Josh Pritchard. We would like to thank everybody for joining us today. And hopefully everyone gets a chance to go to our YouTube channel and we will have more information on the Deeper Dive coming up. I think it's a really important Deeper Dive because it's applicable all around. So I'm excited to get that going. Uh, Remember, you are the most valuable resource that you have we have each other without our collaboration our growth is limited to our own perspectives so hashtag collaboration over competition and until next time bye-bye from the windy city and hooroo from down under 